If you have your Bibles, grab them. If you have a device, you can go to the ESV version. Uh, and we're going to go to Psalm chapter 4 this morning. Psalm chapter 4. We're in week 2 in our Psalms at Summer End series. Psalm chapter 4. What we're going to see as we dive into Psalm 4 is we are going to look at a night in the life of David where all the trouble of the day uh, seems to be descending on him. Today, we would have a word for that. We would call that stress. I don't know if they used that word back then. They used the word distress, and we just took the DI off it, and uh, we just call it stressed. There's not a, a, there's, there's, it's impossible that any of you have lived life even a few short years on this planet and not at some point said, I don't know, I am just so stressed out. And that's what we see here in this particular psalm, in Psalm 4, David is stressed out his life, as a matter of fact, not just this psalm, but as you follow through a lot of the, of the psalms and a lot of the different writings in scripture that chronicle David's life, you see a brother that was constantly under stress. He was, he was like a case study in stress. Um, most of us don't have bosses that set out on a manhunt to wipe us from the face of the earth. David did. Uh, most of us don't have kids who try to kill us because they want to take the throne. Some of us do, right? I'm not, most of us don't, right? So when you think about the level of stress that David had as a king, um, as a father, as somebody who came into the kingship of Israel with all kinds of issues and all kinds of problems and all kinds of stresses. When we read Psalm 4, we get a, just a deeper understanding of what it was like to live in the head of David. And what we'll see when we look into this passage is we'll see passion, we'll see desperation, we'll see pleading, and, and we'll see believing. In fact, it is a work of God through Jesus Christ that Christians have a God who hears us, who helps us, who supplies peace of mind through the work of his spirit inside of us. Here's what's interesting about us though. What many of us would prefer God to be more like is a magician. We would like God to be a little more magical in the way that he deals with all of the details of our lives. We want the Christian life in some ways, if we're honest, we want it to be a little more like a magic show. We want for God to be a little more like Penn and Teller, one of those magicians, right? We want him to prove himself to us by performing magic tricks in our lives in some ways. We want God to make anything that is the slightest bit unpleasant disappear. We want our pain to be like an illusion that God just makes go away, just like that. And then the next time we're faced with pain, we'll will go to him to perform another vanishing act for us. And by the way, if he doesn't perform the way we want, we might, we might just stop coming to his show altogether because he's not giving us the performance that we feel we're entitled to have. I think that's how we approach God because we think somewhere along the line that the Christian life um, as laid out in scripture and as the examples we get out with the women, with the men in scripture is just not supposed to be as choppy as it is. It's not supposed to be as full of stress as it just seems to be all the time, right? But what we see here from David is, is a better model. He shows us a better model today 
And it's one where God's method of grace, listen to this, isn't that he immediately changes David's circumstances, but that he changes David through his circumstances and offers him something we all long for and desire more than anything else, which is peace of mind. Peace of mind, that ability to rest secure, that ability to step into things that put us in a place that feels unsafe, that feels insecure, and have the assurance that we're going to be okay, that everything's going to be okay, even if everything around us would tell us that it isn't, maybe in a physical sense. What we all want is peace of mind. At some point, we all lay our heads on the pillow at night, and we're faced with two things, right? We're faced with the distresses and the stresses of the day on one hand. Man, all the stuff that's waiting for us the next day, all of the stuff that didn't go right that day, all the stuff that's looming in the future that we just can't even get to yet, all the stuff from the past that is still lingering and still nagging at us. That's, that's, my, that's my one side of the pillow at night a lot of times. And then we have the other side of the pillow every night, which is the Lord's presence. The reality that if you are part of this redeemed family that we call the church, if you are a Christian, if you are somebody who is in Christ, if you are somebody who has found forgiveness through Jesus Christ, it means that though all of those things on one side of the pillow may be true, you're also somebody who has the Lord with you and by your side and interceding through your prayers and assuring you through his word that all of these things, they're not imagined, they may be real, but there's something bigger in your life than all of the things that threaten your peace. And that's what we get into here with David. What will we rest in while we wrestle in our minds? Let's pick up verse 1, Psalm chapter 4. It says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. It's the word of the Lord. How does David respond to the stress and the trauma and the drama in his life? The first thing we see here as we pick up in verse one is that David pours out to God. We learned that last week. Remember when we talked about the Psalms, where the Psalms show us that God doesn't ask us to be polite all the time. Now, that doesn't mean we're not reverent, 
but it means that we can just lay things out. Because again, we're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. And that produces a particular kind of freedom in you to go before the Lord and bring him all your stuff. David pours out to God in desperation. He's desperate, but he's not demanding either. Isn't that interesting? But he's also not avoiding his pain. He, he appeals to God's righteousness, not his own. David doesn't think God owes him anything, but he's recalling the times God has provided him with peace of mind. This is the song of a man who's just in agony as the woes of the day turn into the weights of the night. Does that happen to you? Like every day, every night? David says, answer me. Do you realize how he, how he goes to God in prayer? He doesn't, doesn't set up anything. His, the beginning of his prayer is a plea. Answer me, God. I, everything I am is right here in the moment. I'm just laid out bare before you. David acknowledges where he's at. And then notice how the flow of David's words, what they speak to. They speak more to the character of God than they even do his pain. That's significant for you and that's significant for me. When we go before the Lord and we complain, and we should complain hard, and we should be honest, and not just honest, but blood honest. But at some point in our prayers, we need to acknowledge who it is that we're praying to. We need to acknowledge that there is someone more significant than even the significance of our pain. That's what David is doing here. It's often said that people only go to God when everything is wrong, right? You know, there's that cliche where, you know, you got like the meme and like God's up in heaven and he's saying, oh, nice of you to, nice of you to, you know, give me a ring now that everything's just gone south in your, in your life. And that may be, that may be true, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't go to him when everything is wrong. He is still our refuge. He is still the place we go to for our security and our comfort when everything is wrong. Can you resonate with this, with the words of David? Are you somebody that kind of only leaves a voicemail for the man upstairs when everything is going south so it kind of makes you feel guilty and undeserving to go to him at other times? You feel like you're fair weather with God? Everything's great, God. Just want to acknowledge, man, everything is sweet. No, I know you're there, but you know where I am, and let's just keep this rolling. And then everything goes wrong, and you're on your face. It's interesting to think that God is okay with that. Now, he doesn't want that to be the pattern of your life forever, because he wants you to ceaselessly go to him, bringing everything to him, all your burdens, all of your blessings, always acknowledging having a dialogue with God constantly. But sometimes we feel guilty because we feel a little fair weather with God. Well, let me put your mind at rest. We are just, and David knew this, we are just as undeserving when we go to him during the good times too. You don't go to God because you're good. You go to God because he is good despite where you find yourself on the goodness scale. Which, by the way, is way lower than you think, even in your good times, right? 
God uses times of distress to stress how dependent our lives really are on him. We never earn our right to go to God. David didn't think he had earned his rights to pour out to God. He was appealing to God's righteousness and reputation as the reason he could call to him in crisis. And maybe you need to shift your thinking about where God is and who God is and how God responds to you when you're in your darkest hour or you're in a time of great blessing and it's almost like God doesn't need to exist because everything's just flying for you. Everything's awesome. David pours out to God. He also addresses his enemies. He addresses the thing that's kind of kicking at him, right? David is a dude who's experiencing it looks like verbal attacks from his enemies. He asks, how long will you continue to slander me with lies and seek to ruin my reputation? Some of us have those kind of enemies in our life. We have those physical enemies like David did. For some of us, we, we battle different kinds of enemies. Our enemies feel more like, like circumstances beyond our control. We have, a, we have a very hidden or maybe a not so hidden sin that is just surfacing and that can't be concealed or that all of our efforts to conceal it, it's not working anymore. Some of us just may have a physical ailment or we have a disease that we're battling through and it feels like an enemy that's attacking. It feels like somebody that we're in a battle with all the time. Some of us have relationship troubles or trauma some of us have financial problems. We just can't seem to get ahead. How do you address these things? How do you address those things? Just leave them simmering? Would you just bring them to God the way David just brings them to God in all of their messiness and all of their brokenness? What David does is he moves towards self-examination as the day for David here in Psalm 4, it turns into night, he lets the Lord speak to him in the silence that he might find, even in his state, forgiveness through repentance, which is what offering right sacrifices means here when he uses that phrase, that he can trust in the Lord, that he might be counted among the godly. Is it because David never made a mistake? Of course not. Oh my gosh. That guy? I mean, you'd have to work really hard to screw it up like David did. But he goes to God, not on account of his own godliness, but on account of God himself. A right sacrifice to God is a life that is a living sacrifice to God. It's saying this, listen, I'm laying everything I am at the foot of your altar because you are who I can trust. All the other gods in my life, all the other sins in my life, all the other blessings of my life that I've made into gods, they can neither hear, help, or provide me with anything. David addresses his enemies. He moves towards self-examination. And then he consistently and constantly 
shifts and turns and returns his thoughts back to God, toward God. He sees that the motivation of those who are worldly-minded is always to gain more of the world, right? I don't have peace of mind, so I have to go after the only things I know that can give me, some, that can give me a little self-medication, that can make me feel good about where my life is at because I don't have a savior that's already accounted for the things that I can't account for, right? The mindset of the world and for Christians many times is what have you done for me lately? What's in it for me? What do I get out of the deal, right? Our worldliness, our worldly mindedness makes it so that our aim is, is increasing in those things that we feel are going to provide us with some peace, like wealth, for example. And then you have David, a wealthy king, who is desiring a different kind of wealth here in Psalm 4. In fact, he echoes an old school blessing from Aaron, the high priest, when he says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. In other words, God, be the illumination that I need to see everything clearly in my life. I have enemies. I have sin. I am not a spotless person. I have tendencies. I bend into things that I shouldn't be bending in. I have people that are on my back that want to see my life end and not in a very pretty way. He says, can you illuminate those things in my life so that I continue to be a person that walks in righteousness, that walks in godliness, that goes after you, that lays my soul and my heart bare before you? Why? Because that's pleasing to God. That's pleasing to God. A humble and a contrite heart that goes before God and says, here I am. It's a mess. And it's like God's up there going, now we're talking. Now we're talking. That's what David's driving at here. In other words, David is saying, God, remember your chosen people. Have favor on us. Bless us again. Let our true satisfaction come from being pleasing to you is what he's saying. It's enough, it's enough, David is saying, to be counted among the godly and for you to hear our prayers. Sometimes when we get low enough and we finally come to God in that lowliness, we finally realize that what is important in our life is for us to be close to God and to have his ear and to remember that he does. All the other stuff, we finally shed it a little bit, right? David says, I see what the world seeks after. I see the depths. I've seen how easily the things of the world consume people, make beasts out of them. But you have given me something more, is what David is saying. You have supplied me with something far above those whose happiness is tied to material excess. So interesting, isn't it? Because this is a brother who had material excess. He said, I'm going to paraphrase here. He said, there's more joy when my heart is full of God than when my belly, bank account, and wine cellar are bursting at the seams. That's what he's saying. 
I don't know, man. I like that full belly. You guys see my Instagram account. I don't mind a bank account that has a few dollars in it. Wine cellar bursting at the seams. Uh, LaCroix, I don't know, you know. But what we see here is a pattern to David's prayer that we would be well to just look and reflect on and pattern our lives after. He calls out to God to hear and to help him. He speaks to the cause of his distress and pleads that he would find reconciliation with God, that God would illuminate those things that need to be illuminated so that his mind would become a peaceful place again. And then he finally comes back to remembering what has always been true about God, that in him is the kind of peace of mind that allows him to actually sleep in safety. He can be vulnerable under the covers of his own bed because God alone is his safety. Does that make sense? Man, there's a lot to this, which is why we have another 60 minutes in this sermon. Here's three things I want us to take home with us as we reflect on this. The first one is this. God hears those who call his name. Think about that. Think about the, the one who spoke the world into existence with the power of his word. He hears our words. People that have no power to speak anything into existence. So this all-powerful God who spoke light and the world into existence bends down with his ear. And he says, I hear you and I will answer you and I will care for you. I'm not so big that I don't understand the intricacies and the details and the mundaneness of all your problems and all the stuff that you go through. Some of you are in distress this morning. You're like a walking version of those tornado sirens that go off the first Wednesday of every month in town, right? But the people of God, David tells us, have a God who listens to his people. Listen, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him, Psalm 91. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. The God who spoke the world into existence is a relational God who wants to hear what's troubling his children. He's not a therapist. He's not a magician. He's a father who will comfort you in crisis as you pour your words out to him. Look at the state of David's heart by the end of this psalm. Look how it changes. And that's eight verses. I mean, that took us, what, 64 seconds to read? Man, that's a big change. That's a big transformation that David gets to in his thoughts as he wrote this psalm. But we can know that God hears us, just like David knows that God hears him. 
In fact, knowing God hears us is part of what it looks like to know God. It's trust. God hears those who calls his name. God helps those who bear his name. So if you are part of this church, if you are part of this redeemed gospel people, you bear the name of Christ. God hears those who bear his name. And you got to think about and you got to remember who David is. He was the king. Think about the army of mighty men that were under his command. Think about the level of authority he held over a nation who submitted to his rule. Think of the priests, the advisors, the, all the wise counsel he had at his fingertips. Interesting thing about David is that he never thought he'd become too self-sufficient or all-powerful to plead for God's help. He knew he was just a man. He knew he was called to be king, but he knew that he was just an earthly king who bowed before the throne of a heavenly king who really contained all the power and the control in his life. And we have to ask ourselves, who is our go-to? Who is your go-to when you need help? When you find yourself swirling and your mind is just filled with chaos. Did God give David the kind of help David wanted? He did. Because David asked God to meet his true needs, which were what? Well, which were to be in God's presence and to experience the peace that comes from that kind of trust. He still prays for deliverance when we read the Psalms. Lord, deliver me from these people. Deliver, when David says, deliver me from the hand of those that are trying to end my life unjustly, like he's being literal. Like I, I get all dramatic about that stuff, right? Like if you hear my prayers, you're gonna be like, man, I feel like there's an army outside of your window right now. Like Ronnie, is there something I'm missing here? Because your prayer sounds so dramatic. I'm like, well, no, but it just feels that way. It feels like there's all these people trying to get me. It feels like my life is just collapsing. Whether those things can be real, like in David's case, or they can be things that feel that impactful in our lives, we understand that God is there to help. He's there to listen. When we plead to God for help, God answers by strengthening us in the weakness and in the worry of our heart. Because we bear his name, he helps us the way that he helped Christ. We remember Christ going before God saying, Father, if this cup can pass, if I don't have to die, if I don't have to go through the pain that's ahead of me, if there's another way. And all we see in scripture at that moment is that God is silent. The prayer doesn't get answered. The pain has to be gone through. He has to go to the cross. And he follows that silent yes with not my will, but your will. Did God hear Jesus in that moment? Did God help Jesus in that moment? He did. And because he helped Jesus in that moment, we are helped in every moment. Finally, God has peace of mind for those who trust his name. Sometimes you have 
like a millimeter of trust in that cup. That's still trust. That's still trust. When David is trusting God for relief and for grace and for peace, it means that he's not thinking of backup. Sometimes I think we diversify our trust, right? We become stingy. We can lack generosity with our trust, meaning we don't put it all on one person. We say, God, I'll trust you if you act, if you deliver the way that I want you to deliver in my life. So we kind of become deal makers. We become transactional with God. We start thinking, hey, I kind of know what I need. And I need you to understand that, God. And I need you to deliver the package on the day at the time that I need it delivered. So we become transactional with God. We become people who diversify our trust. David is not thinking of any backups here. He's not imagining that just in case God fails, I got this, you know, I do got this massive army. My general, on point, you know, whatever. These new chariots are looking sweet. I got those going for me, so I should be okay. He knows that his only recourse is God. That's so interesting. Because the dude had a lot of junk going on. He had a lot of resources. I mean, if God chooses to use his army, his generals, his chariots, he will. But it's not those things that will protect him, save him, or keep him secure in the end. It's, it's God alone. And God never failed David. And by the way, God has never failed you. There's nobody in your life that you can say that about. I love my wife. I have failed her and she has failed me. I have friends who I have failed and they have failed me. I have family members I have failed and they have failed me. God has never succeeded in failing anyone, ever. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? We read in Numbers 23. See, something happens internally when our hope and reliance is placed on God again and again. It's this thing called peace. We have peace in our lying down because the God that helped in days past will be reliable in days to come. And all of us wonder about that, don't we? We wonder what one year, five years, 10 years, what is it going to bring? And then we see that the future for the one who trusts God, it may be unknown to us, but it's known to God. And what we do know is that we will be with him in glory for eternity. This is our great hope. This is the great hope for our immediate yet unknown to us futures. The best illustration I can come up with is flying. I don't know. There is one person you can trust in that plane. I always think about this when I'm taking off. And it's the dude in the cockpit who you believe is well-trained, you know, certified and sober, right? That, that would be the hope. Man, there's no backup plan unless you land on water and having rafts to float on in the middle of the Atlantic never sounds super encouraging to me, to be quite honest. 
But the reason why when I'm on a plane that I can enjoy generous helpings of peanuts and pretzels is because I trust that the pilot's going to land our plane, right? If I didn't, there'd be zero peace. I'd be white knuckling it the whole time. And when turbulence comes, the knuckles go a little white, right? Do you know that there is no backup plan in your life? And maybe that's the the most gracious thing I can say to all of y'all today. God is not your co-pilot. If you have that sticker on your car, you should just take that off. I'll help you. God is not your co-pilot. He builds the plane, flies the plane, invites us to be a part of his flight that he has paid for in a sky that he created, taking you to the destination he has planned before the foundation of the world. That's what David is saying here. That's what he's advocating for. Peace of mind for the mind that trusts in God's trustworthiness. There's only one place to find it. And he's not missing any categories here either. I need relief from stress, from my enemies, reassurance, safety, and sleep. There's nothing David is pleading for that isn't at the heart of everything that you and I desire. And by default, you and I are going to search for it somewhere. And maybe it needs to occur to us that we lack it because we're trying to draw it from a person or place where it doesn't exist. It's like trying to get fresh water out of a gas pump. You go back every day, you put your card in, clicks, whatever, super unleaded. Just thinking the best of you guys all right now. And out comes super unleaded. And a receipt for (laughs) $4,971. The only problem is that you are thirsty. You need a water faucet, not a gas pump. Gas pump fuels your car, but it doesn't keep your body hydrated and alive. It'll keep taking your money, but it's not going to quench your thirst. C.S. Lewis says this, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. David went to God to ask for that which he didn't deserve. Do you know that God is the least stingy person who has ever existed in time, eternity, and in your life? A God who answers the call of such undeserving people like me, like you? Somebody who is that gracious has to be that unfathomably good and gracious. And in those seasons where he answers by saying no or having us wait, it's a gracious answer. Why? Because it means he doesn't give us something harmful. He doesn't give us something that we can't anticipate may not be good for us, that we're only asking for because we don't know how it might turn on us in the end, even though it feels right in the moment. Some of you think that the greatest relief from stress can only come when you're delivered from it. And sometimes God removes those things. He removes what's causing our stress. He delivers us from it. But if that's the only time we experience peace, 
we will live the majority of our lives in turmoil because God's desire for his people isn't to perform magic tricks. He doesn't always make painful things vanish. He doesn't always remove difficult people and despairing circumstances from the equation. His will for us is to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. His son, whose greatest burden was not removed, whose prayer was not answered, so that we would have a peace that remains for eternity. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God, our Lord, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So here's what's interesting, all right? I'm gonna finish up with this. We're going long because I had a little more time. That's what happens when you give the guy a little more time. We work hard. We work hard. We go after peace hard in all kinds of different ways. One of the things we do is we try to establish everything in our life to be as comfortable and as smooth and as cushy as possible because we think that is what actually gives us peace. And so we work really hard to do that without really noticing that our lives are being spent or sold doing that. Now, obviously, we lean into comfortable things, right? Like, I'm going to get home today, I'm thirsty, I'm going to grab that glass of water, right? Like, I'm going to wake up this morning, I'm not going to walk out the door with no clothes on, right? I'll get arrested and fired. <laughs> and it's uncomfortable too, by the way. But we are drawn towards comfort. When I'm hungry, I'm going to grab a bite, right? When I'm cold, I'm going to grab a blanket. We move towards comforts that God has given us in a good and redemptive way, and one that speaks of his, of his care for us. But I think we, we take it to another level. We pursue, we have lives that are characteristic of pursuing comforts that we think are going to be the thing that makes the difference in our lives and supply us with that peace of mind that we so desperately want. So when I was growing up, that's not what was talked about at all. When I was growing up, this is what they told us to do. They said, don't drink don't have premarital sex, and don't dance. I know, that third one feels random to me. <laughs> We're not Baptists here, so you can, you can dance. All, you can dance to your heart's content. Um, but what happened was I started checking those boxes off, and sometimes not great, right? But when I was doing great, I was checking those boxes. But what somebody never told me about was that there's other ways to be worldly, right? There's other ways to, to be a worldly person. And one of those ways is to set up false trusts around us and to spend all of our time building up bank accounts and developing things around us that we feel like, man, now I got some security. I got a life of ease. 
I have something that feels good, that's going to take me into the future, that's going to last beyond my life. And we actually believe that and we actually think that those are things that are worth pursuing. And then we're part of churches where nobody ever talks about that. They just talk about like a version of those other three things. And they, you know, add some politics in it. And yet the heart of scripture here and what Paul, what David is trying to tell us here in Psalm 4 is that without God, without our pursuit being fully landing on God, all of those other things are just collapsible properties. And so even our pursuits, we have to step back and we have to, be, we have to self-examine those pursuits. We have to be mindful the way David is mindful here. We have to ponder in our own hearts on our bed and be silent. We have to offer right sacrifices. You know what it means to offer a right sacrifice? It means to say, Lord, I am so blind to my stuff that unless you illuminate, unless you shine the light of your face upon me, I almost don't have any possibility of seeing it. So that's what we do when we walk away from Psalm 4 is we say, Lord, illuminate my life. I'm not somebody who often experiences peace of mind, but it's not because you are not my peace. It's because I have substituted things. And so lay those things bare before the Lord. You're people who have been redeemed from those things, but yet we have to go before the Lord daily and be reminded of those things that threaten to be our temporary or our substitute for peace. God presents Jesus Christ and says, here is your peace. Here is the ultimate peace. And that's what we're going to do as we take communion here in a minute, is we are going to remember that as people that have been redeemed by Christ, that have been changed and saved by the gospel, as we take symbolically of the bread, which represents his body, and the cup, which represents his shed blood, we remember now that this is what connects us to Jesus Christ. This is what connects us to one another. That's why if you are not somebody that has made a commitment to Christ yet, and we would ask you just to sit back. There's no judgment there. Nobody's going to point that out. We would rather you sit back and reflect on the things that have been said and maybe take that time as an opportunity to go before the Lord and see where you have not trusted Christ for your salvation. See the places in your life where you lack peace of mind and you want that peace of mind which is offered to you today in Christ so as we come and as we take the bread as we drink the cup we have three stations two up here one in the back and we are reminded again of the sacrifice of the right sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf so that that hostility that we have between us and God might be erased it's the biggest thing that has ever happened in the world and it's the only way for us to have peace with God. And so when we do this, when we, when we take part in this symbolism, God strengthens us through reminding us corporately as a family of what he's done for us and how that has changed everything. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to pray. The ushers are going to come up and we're going to take communion. Bow your heads with me if you would. God, we thank you 
that Christ is our peace of mind and that as we take of the bread and the cup, we are reminded that hostility that we have with God because of our sin, because we have been saved, that wall has been taken down and we have peace and joy. Lord, we thank you for providing your son. We thank you for not answering his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane when he said, can this cup be removed from me? And you said no, and he obeyed. And because of that now, we get to enjoy peace and we get to be obedient. So Lord, would you strengthen us now as we take of this bread and this cup? Lord, strengthen us as a people that need to be reminded of who we are and what we have in Christ. We ask in Christ's name, amen.